It's episode 15 of the Keto for Women show. You're listening to the Keto for Women show, and I'm your host and nutritionist, Sean Miner. This show is designed to empower women to find their own expression of the keto diet to maximize their health and happiness. Now let's get started with today's episode. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Keto for Women. Super excited to be here with you all. As always, we have a packed show today with all listener questions. You know, it's my favorite time. I love answering your questions. I just could do it all day long, which I guess I do. It's my job. But uh, specifically for the show, we will get started on those in just a minute. I'm also going to talk a little bit about my own mold illness journey Um, because I've just been getting tons of questions about that lately and for good reason. So I thought I would make a little bit of an episode here at the beginning to refer people to when they do have questions about what I went through, what tests I had run, what medications I use, all that good stuff. Not too much in the way of announcements today either. We're just probably going to jump right in really quick here, but I haven't done this in a while, so I do want to make sure everyone knows how to get a hold of me. So if you have any questions for the show or questions in general, email those to info at ketoforwomenshow.com. If you want to just learn more about me, you can head to seanminer.com. That's my website. And I'm no longer taking one-on-one clients, at least for a few months so I can kind of catch up. But if you do want to be considered to work with me one-on-one, you can go to work with Sean on my website. There's a spot to kind of be added to the wait list for that. So I will probably be taking new clients in the beginning of the year, perhaps, and you can be on the wait list to do that. If you want to just connect with me in a more fun setting, I highly recommend over on Instagram following me there at Sean Minor Health, and you can Tune in to my Instagram stories. That's where I pretty much just hang out all day, just chatting with myself, but really my friends over on the other side of the phone. And that's really fun. And if you don't have Instagram, you can follow me over on Facebook too. I'm there at Sean Minor Health as well. A quick note, which I don't think many of you know, is that we have started a Instagram and Facebook account for the Fat Burning Female Project. Now, not the private one that you get into when you start the course, but just kind of an account to show folks a little bit more about what the program's like, what we do in there, what we eat, all that stuff. So you can follow that on Instagram at Fat Burning Female and on Facebook at Fat Burning Female. You can see more about what it's like to be a fat burning female and part of the project. If you haven't already and you are enjoying the show, I would absolutely love a review over on iTunes. It really does mean a lot. I read every single one and it really keeps me going. It keeps my passion and enthusiasm for this podcast alive and I want to keep doing this forever. So I just would love it if you could let me know what you think, what you're loving about the shows. Just let me know over there on iTunes Just go to leave a review, pick a little star rating, and then add a sentence or two in the comment, and you're done. It takes like a minute. So that would be awesome. If you haven't done that already, I would super appreciate that. I think that's it. We're going to jump right into it today. So let's get started. First of all, we're starting with my story of 
mold illness. Now, I talked about it a little bit last week, so I'm not going to go through exactly what happened and how I got there. I want to more so go into how I found out, what the testing was, the treatment protocol, that kind of thing. First of all, my symptoms. I know I mentioned this before, but I'll talk about them again. My symptoms were mainly intense fatigue, intense brain fog, memory issues, word recollection issues, not being able to hold a conversation with more than one person, just being so tired, not having the energy or ability to do much of anything physical or even sometimes just to get through the day. I know there were a lot of times I would wake up, I would eat breakfast, I would do a little bit of work, and I would have to go back to bed because I was so tired. Sleep was an issue, so a lot of sleep disruption and joint pain, specifically in the morning right when I got out of bed, and I just knew I was too young to be experiencing that especially in my feet, knees, and wrists. Those are my biggest complaints. And really the biggest thing that got me motivated to figure out what was going on and just to really understand that there was something beyond my control was with my weight. So my weight changed dramatically over the course of probably about five or six months. I think I gained about 30, 35 pounds in five months. So it was really fast. It was for no reason. I was eating the same exact way. I was still working out almost as hard. I had definitely taken it down a notch or two and was giving myself more days off, but I was still working out, still being active. At the time, I was a personal trainer, so I was still, you know, lifting weights and things for my clients and having just an active job. And it just didn't matter. I was definitely gaining weight at a very serious clip that I knew had nothing to do with what I was doing lifestyle wise. That's what led me to start digging, and I went to one naturopath. We did a bunch of tests. Unfortunately, she wasn't as educated in the specific protocol that I needed, so while I got some answers there, I didn't get all of the answers that I needed to actually get healed and get better, so it did take a little bit longer than I wanted to because I was kind of going through a protocol that wasn't necessarily the one that I should have been doing. And then finally, I just kind of got fed up with that. And I realized through a friend of mine, actually, that lives here in Boulder and who is going through the same thing, that we had a doctor here in the area, a naturopath also, that was versed in this specific protocol that I knew I needed to be doing. So let me back up and tell you about the tests I had done and the protocol. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morph. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. So the testing that you are doing, if you are finding out if mold is an issue for you, is extremely specific and not something that 99% of traditional medicine doctors or primary care physicians are going to recognize or know what to do with. They are extremely specific to this particular protocol, this particular illness. Now, it's biotoxin illness, and underneath the umbrella of biotoxin illness, there is illness from mold. There is illness from Lyme disease, so from a Lyme-carrying tick. 
there's other like blue-green algae, other types of spiders, these random things that I think are a little bit less common, but obviously the most common ones are toxic mold and Lyme disease. These are all under the umbrella of biotoxin illness. Now, Lyme disease is treated a little bit differently, mainly because you have to go through the antibiotic process, whereas mold, you don't have to. You can just go through this uh, this detox protocol, basically. But in order to do that, you first have to know that this is something you're dealing with. Now, like I've mentioned before, it is a genetic predisposition also because there are 75% of the population that can be around mold, in mold, living in mold, touching mold, whatever, and they do have the ability to process that out and to detox that. So you get away from the mold and... you're good. You just takes a little bit probably to detox. Maybe you feel a little crappy in the meantime, but then you bounce back. There are 25% of the population that cannot do that. They do not have that ability to detox from that biotoxin. And so their body doesn't really know what to do with this. And it inflames, obviously, to help take care of this toxin that has now been built up and they can't get rid of. And the immune system starts responding and reacting. So a lot of people do have autoimmune diseases that come about because of the exposure to mold. This inflammatory response starts affecting everything, Uh, your muscles, your joints, every tissue, your brain, your hormones. I mean, everything is just kind of thrown out of whack because of this inflammatory response. So you need to be testing, first of all, know if you've been exposed to mold. And then you also need to know what your genetic predisposition is. Can you or can you not detox from this? If finances are an issue and you can't maybe get all of the testing done, I do recommend you get that first one test done. And anyone can order it. You can order it online and get that test done. And then you can go to websites and figure out what your results mean when you get them back. Because when you first get them back, it just looks like a completely different language that you would never understand. That test is called the HLA-DR gene test. So it's HLA space DR gene test. You can Google that. There are places you can get it. I think it's $350. I know it's expensive, but trust me, if you are someone that is dealing with random health issues that don't make any sense and you can't figure them out, it is worth it. Because remember, 25% of the population could be dealing with this if they've been in a moldy environment at any point in their life. If you can and want to get the whole testing scenario done at once. I do really recommend that. It honestly is expensive, but for me, it was the best money ever. I do not have any qualms about the money I spent to get this testing done so that I could finally get answers. That testing protocol needs to be done through a shoemaker certified practitioner, and you can find out if there's one in your area. Honestly, I would just Google shoemaker doctor wherever you live and see what comes up and see how far away that is. There are some people that may not be specifically certified, but at least know the protocol that you can also go to. So keep your eyes open for something like that too. Like that's the way that my doctor is. He did study under Shoemaker, but never got certified, but he still knows the protocol in and out. And that's plenty. That's all you actually need. Now, the reason you need to go to these specific doctors is because there is one doctor, one actual MD that was able to determine that this 
chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is kind of the overarching health issue that happens because of these biotoxin illnesses, remember that inflammation I was talking about, this one doctor was able to figure this whole situation out, did a lot of studying and testing, and was able to determine this, and has since created a protocol specifically for this biotoxin illness, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And honestly, it's the only protocol that works. It really, truly is. There are other people trying to do other protocols, and they're not getting better. So this protocol is the way to go. It is the only one that has been studied and verified and gets results. He has now been teaching other physicians and nurses and naturopaths how to go through this protocol appropriately. That's why it has to be the specific shoemaker doctor that you are going to see because Dr. Shoemaker is the person that created this protocol that actually works. So that's a really important step. Just going to any naturopath, again, they might not do the testing and the treatment the way that you need it to be done to actually get the results that you need to feel better. So be very wary of that. Once you find that doctor, then obviously you make an appointment and go and uh, trust me, they are very busy. They are amazing doctors and they're very specific and there's a lot of people dealing with this. So they're busy. So don't be shocked if you have to wait a few months to get in. But when you do make an appointment, they are going to run a bunch of blood tests. Now, these blood tests are looking at, you know, quite honestly, I don't even know what they are. They are so incredibly specific, but they are looking for these inflammatory markers that are very specific to biotoxin illness. So it's not just like getting your CRP tested, which is what a a traditional blood panel will show you for inflammation. Going to this specific shoemaker doctor, they will know exactly what tests to run. You can also read more about these specific tests at survivingmold.com. That is Dr. Shoemaker's actual website. And really just kind of look around that entire website. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of good stuff. That's really where I got started with all of this. And you can learn more about what they're actually testing and what can go wrong. I will link that up in the show notes so you can access it easily. And it will tell you much more about these specific blood tests because quite honestly, I have no idea what they are. I still don't know. And I've been getting them tested for over a year now quite regularly. And all I know is that I want some to be at this range and some to be at that range. And when they're not, I know it means that I am inflamed and I am working through this chronic inflammatory response syndrome and I need to figure it out. So if you can go that route and you really do think this is something that you're dealing with, I highly recommend you just do it. Now, some of it might be covered under insurance. Some You might be able to find a doctor in your network that is covered under insurance that is also shoemaker certified. But even if not, it still is absolutely worth the money. Again, like I said, I do not regret ever spending that money to get the testing done to know for sure. And if you want to just start out with the one test, like I said, you can do that. And if it is positive and you do have the gene to where you cannot detox, if you are susceptible to mold or lime or all, as is the case for me, I can't really do any biotoxins. Um, If you find out you're positive, then you can go to the next step to find the shoemaker doctor, or you might find out that you're not susceptible to these things and you're good. You may just have to make sure you're not currently exposed to mold. And if you are, just get out because it's not good for anybody and get that resolved. But you might be good beyond that. 
That would be the first step, deciding which way you want to go. There are some other tests you can do. You can do the VCSI screening test, which basically just you look at a computer and kind of go through this little screening test because basically if you are dealing with biotoxin illness, your ability to determine different shades of gray and black is compromised, which sounds, again, weird but true. And this test is actually has been shown to be relatively accurate. However, I will say I know lots of people that have taken it that it wasn't accurate. So this wouldn't be the overall determining factor. I really think that you should just go through the blood testing regardless. But you can do that test if you want to just to see. I think it's like $15 over at survivingmold.com. Might be a good first step. But like I said, there's been so many people that it hasn't been accurate for that I know specifically. So please don't hang your hat on those results. From there, once you determine if this is something that you do have to deal with, the very first step is you have to get out of mold. You cannot be exposed to mold. So you have to figure out where it's coming from. If it's your house, your car, your work, your parents' house, wherever you go frequently, your gym, it is in my case, uh, you have to figure out where that is, where you're getting exposed, and you have to cut that. If it's your home, you can either decide to remediate and then you have to go through and make sure your remediation is 100% appropriate and approved. There's a lot of not so great remediation places out there, so that has to be dealt with and figured out. Or you can move and find a different place to live that doesn't have mold. It's all a tough situation. It's never fun. Like I have mentioned, I moved twice and I had a hard time finding a place to live because the place I thought I was going to rent out ended up having a mold. And I found that out three days before I was supposed to move in. So it was a mess and it was hard, but it's worth it. It's all worth it. Trust me to get this figured out and to get into a safe place to live. Now, it could also be a situation from your past. Maybe you grew up living in a moldy home and it kind of stayed dormant. This gene expression stayed dormant until you had another stressful event. So that happened to me. That happens quite often where I was living in mold for a year and I was fine. And then I had another health issue. So I ended up getting salmonella from some bad chicken. And as soon as that started and that stress response happened, my body just tanked. Everything started going wrong. And it was because of that stressful event that then led to this gene finally expressing itself and me living in a moldy environment. So it was this perfect storm for it all to happen. And that happens quite often where someone hasn't even been exposed to mold for a while, but then something else like pregnancy or another health issue or even a ton of stress getting a divorce or getting a new job or something like that. And then they start noticing all these health issues. So that is entirely possible as well. But that will be your first step. And then you go through this protocol, which is basically helping your body detox. So the first step is, and I posted this over on uh, Instagram stories, if you saw that the other day, the first step is what's called cholestyramine. It is on label as a prescription medication for cholesterol lowering, which is super ironic that I am taking that because I do not want my cholesterol lower. And I know the benefits of having actually nice, good, robust cholesterol, but that's just the way it is. And then off-label, it can be used to bind biotoxins that have taken up home in your body and eliminate them for you. So it's very effective at doing so, works really well 
So you go through that. And then once you have specific markers that have lowered to a good enough point, you can kind of make your way off of that medication and make your way onto another medication. Super hard to explain. All I know is that it works. It really starts turning everything on again, getting you back to feeling normal again. And it also kind of turns that gene expression off. So it kind of downplays your genes that have now gone a little bit crazy helps your immune system out, gets that inflammation down, just really gets you back to feeling normal. But you have to be kind of, first of all, obviously outside of the moldy situation, but then also detoxed appropriately too before you can get on this medication. So, you know, people go through this protocol for years. For me, it was almost exactly a year and then I started feeling normal again. But then like you all heard last week, I am back on part of the protocol again because I had a gym environment that was not doing me any favors. And so it's just honestly kind of going to be something that will always need to be monitored if you are someone with this genetic tendency that has expressed itself. I know that was a really long explanation, but it's important because this is something that a lot of people are dealing with that don't know it yet. There are people just not getting answers, not understanding why they're sick, getting more and more autoimmune diseases, getting diagnosed with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and arthritis and depression and anxiety and and getting diagnosed with more and more things, but not really understanding why all of this is happening to their bodies. And it all comes back to this one thing, this chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And if you go to these websites, you will see all the ways it can look and express itself in people's bodies as other diseases when it's actually just one and it's symptoms of one. So it's really important that I continue to share this message. I think that there are people listening today that are dealing with this that don't know and hopefully this can shine a light and you can get some help. You can go find that shoemaker doctor that is as close to you as you can get and start the process. Or if you want to order that one test, go order that one test, but start doing something if you think this could be you, if it sounds like you. And at minimum, I think if everyone goes to these websites and just checks it out, whether it's you or maybe it's someone you know, maybe it's your parents or your friend or your your husband or wife, just whoever it is, maybe you can start explaining the situation to these people too. You might know someone that's dealing with this as well. So everyone goes to survivingmold.com, like I mentioned, and then the other great one is called biotoxinjourney.com. Both great sites. I will link to both of them in the show notes for easy access, but that should explain a lot of what I can explain. I know I'm not the most scientific person, so a lot of these tests and things don't make a ton of sense to me, but I get the overall picture and I know what needs to happen and I want you to get that help if you need it. If you want to know more about my particular story, I have written a couple times on my blog, several posts as I was kind of going through it on my progress. You can go to seanminer.com and just search mold and all of those will pull up and you can start reading about my actual journey in case it does sound like similar to your story. Okay, let's move on to some listener questions today. I love it. Okay, we're getting started with Anita. She says, hi, Sean. I just wanted to say your podcasts have really helped me out and I'm looking forward to taking your Fat Burning Female Project course starting in November. I was just listening to your latest episode and I learned so much. I have a ton of questions, but I know I will get them answered as I go on. But my burning question is, 
I am in menopause. The only side effects I ever suffered with was the moodiness, the bloating, and the non-ability to lose weight. But now I know it was because my body needed healing in a big way, and I feel I am in the middle of the healing process. Weight is moving, and I feel so much better while following this way of life. The one thing that is getting me is my hot flashes. I never had them before, and now that I am in nutritional ketosis, it's almost a daily thing. Is this normal? Does this mean my hormones are reacting to ketosis? Is that a good thing? I want to say I'm burning ketones and the only way I will ever know is if I have blood drawn, but I have not gone to my healthcare provider to be tested. Thanks, Sean. Love your show. This is a great question. I get this question a lot, especially for women in fat-burning female. This is kind of one of the aspects of transition that can happen if you are in the 50 or over age range, let's say. There's a few things. First of all, for Anita, it doesn't sound like she's currently testing her ketones, so I'm not confident that she is in nutritional ketosis. I think she thinks she is, but we would need to confirm that for sure by doing a blood test. Uh, I recommend just getting a ketone meter and testing your blood so you don't have to go to the doctor to do that. You can do it any day that you want, that would be the best way to go. But if you're not in ketosis and you're just kind of in this, what I call low carb purgatory, then that could be a stressor on your body. And that's why you're getting hot flashes. You're kind of upregulating your stress response. And part of that is going to show up as hot flashes when you are someone 50 or over. If you are in ketosis, this is actually in a weird way, kind of a good thing. And pretty much always does regulate after a few months. If you have gotten into ketosis and you had previous hormonal imbalances, and this goes for everyone no matter what age you are and no matter what side effects you experience because of your hormonal imbalances, but let's say it's cramps. You may experience heavier cramps for the first month or two, and then it really does regulate itself. So in Anita's case, these hot flashes they are going to regulate and be much more tolerable, if not totally gone in another month or two, once you fully get into a ketogenic state, producing the right amount of ketones for you. What seems to be happening in these cases, and this is quite common, when you already have a hormonal imbalance and you get into ketosis, there is that small period of time where you are in a transition phase where you're not producing ketones, you've changed your diet pretty dramatically, and you're, you've lowered your carbs significantly, and there's that keto flu type situation, but also this time where you're not producing ketones. And in that case, there's going to be a little bit of a stress response in that period of time. There's really no way around it. There's no other way to get into ketosis and not have that happen, at least somewhat, even if we are taking it slowly, as I mentioned, is the best way to do. So that little bit of a stress response can cause some increase in these side effects, potentially, if you already had a hormonal imbalance. But like I said, they will even themselves out. There may also be, and I don't know, I don't have the scientific evidence to prove this, but this is just what I've seen a lot in ladies in the class is sometimes it's just an amplification because it's actually the start of the healing process. There are a lot of cases 
in the health journey where things get a little bit worse before they get better, but it's all part of that healing process. And I truly think that that happens too when you are in ketosis and working on your hormones. It's just a small period of time where it looks like things are getting worse, but it's actually because they are starting to improve. And so there may be this moment where there's a little bit of a amplification of the side effects. But again, I would be surprised if these hot flashes didn't completely go away or at least greatly improve with Anita in another month or two. And same thing for anybody that is going through ketosis and has other sorts of uh, side effects that they're noticing. Next question is from Katie. Katie asks, I have a couple of questions about ketone numbers from blood testing. I've been keto for about three months now and testing somewhat regularly still. My readings tend to be on the low side, usually in the 0.8 to 1.5 range, even though I feel like I experience ketosis benefits. First off, do some people just tend to always have lower numbers or will those numbers increase the longer I'm in ketosis, taking into account things like carb cycling, etc.? Secondly, how do I know if I'm fat adapted? Thanks, Katie. Okay, so we're going to answer this one specifically real quick, and then I have a very similar one talking about testing ketones that we'll go into after that is a little different, so I want to make sure to cover it all. The question of testing ketones just comes up so frequently, and if you haven't listened to all of my episodes, then I just want to point out that I do find great benefit in having women test their ketones and using it as a tool to find out more information about your body, not as a tool to get obsessive and start testing three times a day and wondering what's wrong and getting all upset when you're not producing the right amount of ketones or suddenly your ketones drop when you didn't change anything. I've seen it all and I really don't think that that's the right way to use it. However, I do think just learning more about your body, where you feel best and at what reading that is, how long it takes you to get into nutritional ketosis, how high your fat needs to be, how moderate your protein needs to be, and how low your carbs need to be, which is something we talked about last week. You can use that ketone reading to really figure out your macros, essentially, what your plate should look like. And it's probably going to be different than my plate and your other girlfriend that's doing keto and your mom that's doing keto. They're all going to be different. And you can use that reading to determine where you feel best and what foods your body does best with. Now, specific to Katie's question, she says that she's testing regularly 0.8 to 1.5. That's awesome. And I know it seems low, but that's great. I think that's perfect, especially because you say you're experiencing the benefits of ketosis. Now, if you were to say, I'm testing 0.8 to 1.5, I still feel tired and sluggish and my brain's not working, then I would recommend maybe you do need to get into a higher level of ketosis to feel those benefits. But if you're feeling them where you currently are, then that's great. And even if it's lower, if it's 0.5, 0.6, 0.7, that's awesome. As long as you feel good. It's not the case with ketone readings where the higher, the better. It's not like a 3.0 is better than a 1.8. It's only better if that's where you feel really good. If you only feel good and experience this energy and mental clarity at 3.0, then you probably want to stay there because that's where you feel really good. But if you get those benefits at 0.6, 0.8, 0.9, whatever, then that's also great. 
you're not getting any more or less benefits. As soon as you produce ketones to that degree where you are in nutritional ketosis, you are getting the benefits of ketone production. Your body is getting those benefits. However, some people do better with more. They, they need more to feel better. Some people don't. And that's great too. And I think a lot of it, and I there's not a whole lot of science on this or testing that has been done, but I do think there's a lot of just kind of experience that shows that it just varies based on the person on their obviously their diet, what they're eating, on their previous health status, on their stress level, on their sleep, on their workouts. There are so many factors that contribute to our ketone readings and a lot of them are in our control, but some of them aren't. And you just have to kind of take all of that as more information for yourself. And just find that place where you feel really good and don't stress about it if it's not as high as what you think it should be. As long as you're feeling good, I think you're great. And to answer her question specifically, will they increase the longer I'm in ketosis? It's possible, but probably not unless you kind of do something to change, unless maybe you start sleeping better or maybe you increase your fats or maybe you lower your protein Maybe your stress level changes. There's, a again, all those things I went through that could obviously change the ketone level. But if you're just kind of doing the same thing, it's not going to increase just because it's been a longer period of time. There, I've been in ketosis for a year, and sometimes my ketone levels are at 0.8, and sometimes they're at 2.5 you don't get and stay deeper just because it's been longer. Her next question was, how do I know if I'm fat adapted? So that's really where how you feel comes into play. And I think more of us are fat adapted than we realize. Because remember, we don't have to be in ketosis to be fat adapted. All we really need is our body to understand that when glucose is low enough, it will switch over to burning fat instead of just crying out for more glucose. And really the best way to know that is if you stop having those hangry situations, stop having blood sugar crashes, and start being able to maybe go longer without food, or maybe you're hungry but you don't need to eat, those are really good signs. I would say those are the best signs. Being able to go a few hours without needing a snack, without feeling hangry, without getting shaky or tired or weak, those are all signs of fat adaptation. It sounds to me like since you're in this 0.8 to 1.5 range specifically, Katie, and you're feeling the benefits of ketosis, you're good to go. That mental clarity, that energy, those are all signs of not only ketosis, but fat adaptation too. So you're good. Okay, let's continue on with this conversation about testing ketones with another question. This is from Nina. Hi, Sean. I'm so thrilled to have stumbled on your podcast and website and I'm truly addicted. I started eating ketogenically about two months ago. I've been reading online and following guidelines on how to live the lifestyle on my own. I was using the urine sticks to measure, but never could quite get a good reading. So after hearing your podcast, I bought the blood meter that you recommend. I've been testing consistently every morning when I wake up fasted and again right before bed. Is it normal for significant fluctuations? One morning I was 0.2 and 0.2 at night. The next morning I was 1.5 and 0.6 at night. Then again, 0.2 the next morning. Am I doing something wrong or is this normal? I'm keeping my percentages around 75% fat, 20% protein, and 5% carbs. 
I've been keeping my carbs between 10 to 12 grams a day. Thanks again for filling such an important void for us women. Aw, thanks, Nina. Okay, the conversation about testing continues. Love the fact that Nina took my advice and switched out from using the urine sticks to the blood testing. That is such a great idea. I really do think that is necessary. If anyone else wants to do that, please, please do. You will get such better information, again, about your body and what it's doing in ketosis and how it feels. You really do need to do the blood test. It is totally worth the investment. I link every single week to the blood testing kit that I recommend on the show notes. So make sure to check that out there if you do want to get one. Specific to Nina's question, is it normal for significant fluctuations? Yes, it is. Just like everything else that we do as women, we also fluctuate with our levels of ketones. Now, I highly recommend not testing in the morning. You are always going to get a lower reading in the morning. So I really think it's best to wait until late afternoon to test. So I like to test right before dinner. That's always my time to test and make sure that you haven't eaten or worked out in a couple hours, I would say. So it will be more accurate in that regard as well. But test before dinner only. Don't even worry about testing twice a day. Honestly, don't even worry about testing once a day. I say maybe a couple times a week max because in Nina's case, it starts to get really confusing and you start to get a little too wrapped up in those numbers instead of just thinking about how you feel. Like if Nina's feeling great, then testing once or twice a week is going to be plenty just to make sure that her macros are doing what she wants them to do. That's really the only time that you actually need to test, especially once you're in ketosis, is just to find out, are my meals working for me? Am I staying in ketosis if I have a little bit more protein or a little bit more carb, a little less fat, whatever the case may be in your situation? But testing more than that is really just starts to get a little too up in your head, I think, for a lot of us. But yes, absolutely, they can fluctuate. Like I mentioned in the last question, they're going to fluctuate on a daily basis just based on your stress level, how much water you drank, what your sleep was the last night, how much deep sleep you got, what your activity level was that day, the different kinds of food that you ate, what stage of your cycle you're in, which we heard from Jackie Eberstein in episode seven about that. Our ketone levels fluctuate with our hormonal cycle. So that's something else to consider. And just another reason why we just don't need to test that much. It's just not worth it. Go more by how you feel. Really start tapping into your body and seeing if you feel good. And if you're having a really good day and you feel awesome, that would be a good day to test because then you can see oh, okay, when I'm at 1.5, I feel really good. I have really good days. If you're having a kind of not so great day and maybe you're feeling a little tired or maybe not as clear as you would like, then you could test and see that it's at 0.3 and say, okay, then I know I do need to increase my fat and go to bed early and de-stress and maybe do a quick little workout and I'll get into ketosis where I feel good again. So much information we can use to determine how we feel and and get this information for ourselves instead of relying on Google <laughs> or whatever we want to use to currently get our information about keto. Okay. Moving right along, this is from Erica. 
Hi, Sean. Can you add to your list of podcast ideas eating keto while traveling? I think it's pretty easy in the US, Australia, and Europe because the restaurants are really flexible and grocery stores are great. But can you cover a bit more complex travel? Like when you travel with friends and may or may not have access to grocery stores or fridges. Or if you may not have much control over your meals, what can you pack in your suitcase to keep your fat intake really high? Also for travel in Asia and South America, where you can't usually make substitutions in restaurants and the oils are usually pretty bad. Are these times where it's better to incorporate more fasting so your body can stay in ketosis? Thanks so much, Erica. Great question, as I am about to prepare for two international trips. It's always good to kind of think back to this and really understand how best to work this out. I do agree that some places are easier to travel and get good, healthy oils than others. I always, no matter where I'm going, even if I'm going on a trip to the mountains, which are two hours away, I still always pack fats, no matter what. As long as you are checking a suitcase, you can pack an entire jar of ghee (laughs) or coconut oil. I've done that. I've taken an whole jar of ghee with me on vacation, and it was amazing because then you can still make your fatty drinks, and you can always get some sort of meat too, right? Meat and vegetables are pretty easy to come by, I feel, in most places of the world, I would say. Maybe not all, but it's pretty easy to get your hands on some meat and veggies and then you can use that butter or coconut oil or ghee, whatever you have packed with you and put it on that. Just use your own. Even if you pack a little travel thing of olive oil or you can get little packets of coconut oil and even I think Trader Joe's it might be or maybe Sprouts, one of the two, has little coconut oil slash ghee packets. So you can put that into your carry on really easily too. There are so many ways, but I really do believe in packing your own fats. I think that's a great idea. I do that all the time. I've never had any issues. I also always travel with little packets of nut butters. I think nut butters are great. You can get packets of coconut butter as well, or even just take some nuts or maybe make your own trail mix. You can make fat bombs, bring those with you. You can make keto granola, keto cookies, all these recipes I have out there now and pack those along. I mean, I definitely do recommend packing things. Even if you are with friends, maybe you're just even going on like a road trip or a day trip with friends. I have no problems and I don't think you should either bringing my own food and eating what I want. A lot of my friends don't eat like me and so I just whip out what I want to eat and they could care less. They've totally gotten used to it by now. It's not a big deal and then I get to eat what I want to eat instead of either going hungry or being forced to eat something that my body doesn't do well with. So you just have to kind of think about what you would eat at home because really it's probably not going to be that much different. I mean, in most cases, what I'm eating at home is a meat, a vegetable, and then some sort of fat on top of it. You can do that anywhere in the world. I really think at least in most cases that will still be available to you. But great question. And I often see a lot of anxiety around traveling while being on a specific way of eating. And I really just think that conversation needs to change and we just need to get a better mentality around it. And it makes all the difference in the world. You can eat whatever you want, wherever in the world you want. Just bring it along with you. Leave some extra space in your suitcase to pack food. I always do that. 
And then you will feel a lot better too, because a lot of times on vacation, we just use that as an excuse to completely go off the rails. And you don't want to feel terrible on vacation. Don't you want to feel the best that you can while being able to experience another part of the country or world? Then just sticking with the food that you know feels best in your body for the most part with occasional, of course, like treats or drinks or whatever you want to do because it's vacation. But for the most part, you probably want to stay as close to what you're doing at home as you can so that you feel good. And I think that's really important and it makes it so that it's totally doable if you just bring the things along with you. Okay, next one is from Jade. Sean, I was introduced to your podcast by Jimmy Moore and just love it. I just recently started trying to follow a keto diet. I'm not sure I'm in ketosis. Actually, I suspect I'm not. I'm 36 and a mom of two. I still breastfeed my youngest twice a day. Like you, I remember dieting all my life. My weight went up and down and I was always binging and then following a diet to lose the weight I had gained. I'm trying to break that and want to be healthy and happy for my kids. To top things off, I've struggled with a low-grade depression for as long as I remember. Recently, my doctor wanted to put me on an antidepressant, but I declined as I would like to see if healing my gut and following a ketogenic diet will make a difference. Yay, that's awesome. I know I won't feel the true benefits unless I'm in ketosis. I am hungry all the time. I've been trying to keep my macros at 75-25 for the most part and have been tracking on my fitness pal mostly just to get a sense of how many carbs I'm consuming as I know they add up. My carbs come mainly from heavy cream, lots of nut butter, veggies, and then sometimes from protein powder, sausages, or pepperettes. I don't eat any grains or fruit since I started keto and I'm trying hard to get into ketosis. I find it nearly impossible to stick to 20 grams of carbs per day as so many keto materials recommend. Oh, we talked about that last week. I also find it really difficult to know how much protein I should be eating. I'm trying to eat when I'm hungry, which is pretty much all the time. So on average, I'm eating well over 2,000 calories a day, which I know is not what we are measuring. And within that, usually around 90 to 100 grams protein, 30 to 50 grams carb, and 200 to 250 grams fat. I also exercise and follow the Beachbody exercise program, Body Beast, which is heavy lifting. I have ordered a blood testing meter for ketones. Can you give me any insight or help? I'm really wanting to make these changes, but feel lost. Sincerely, Jade. Love all of Jade's information. I think that that's all really important. This is a pretty common question, which is basically just like, in short, I'm doing everything right. Why am I not getting into ketosis? And I think we need to just kind of go over why that could happen. We really don't know if Jade is in ketosis or not because she's not testing. And you can still be in ketosis and be hungry. If you have any sort of hormonal dysregulation as it relates to your metabolism and your hunger cues, those are the leptin and ghrelin hormones. If any of those have been imbalanced, which is quite common in all of us, especially if we have a history of dieting and undereating, there's a good chance that those hormones are going to be off, which means your hunger and satiety cues are going to be off. If you are constantly hungry, that could mean a low level of leptin, which is kind of your hormone that cues satiety and, okay, I'm done eating, I'm good to go. That could be a low level or it could also be leptin resistance, which I talked about a few episodes ago. The best way to combat that and to get these hormones back in check 
is to eat. <laughs> That's the great thing. You can eat and you will feel these start to slowly regulate themselves and switch over to where you have these normal cues. If you're hungry, that means you need to eat. Now, I would really focus on going for three nice, really good-sized meals per day, and then you can also snack in between if you need to as well, but a lot of times when we really just have these large meals, these really well-balanced, ketogenic, lots of food, lots of nutrients meals, you will start noticing those hunger signals changing. So instead of worrying about whether you're in ketosis or not or wondering what you're doing wrong because you're not in ketosis, you don't even have that information yet, Jade. So I would recommend instead just focusing on really getting those hormonal signals back in check. So eat at these three meals a day. Tinker around with when you're eating and what's on your plate. Maybe you need more vegetables to kind of also bulk up the meal as well. It sounds like your macronutrients are, they seem to be okay, but every person is different, like I talk about in pretty much every episode. So this 75-25 that you're doing as far as macronutrient ratios may not be what you need. You may need more fat. You may need less protein. You may need more carbs. There's a lot of different ways this could go, especially as it relates to hunger. Sometimes people just need to add a little bit more carb and they're not as hungry. This could be by way of vegetables, maybe even a starchier vegetable like a squash every once in a while, maybe some berries, something like that, and you might see that hunger subside. And if it is truly because you're not in ketosis, then I would rather look at other things like you're still breastfeeding. That could be a reason why. How's your sleep? How's your stress? Those are things that I would want to look at more specifically to see why you're not getting into ketosis. Your protein may be a little too high. You may need to up your fats, lower your protein. That could be something to boost you so that you get into ketosis and then you can do that tinkering that we talked about. It's just a matter of you doing the kind of experimentation with your own body. But for now, just eat. Eat those nice, awesome, big, huge meals. Make sure they're really well balanced. Get a lot of variety in your meals too and see if that helps start to balance out this hunger. It's not going to be immediate, but you should start seeing this change in your hunger cues as you start healing those hormones. Okay, let's try one more really quickly. We'll finish off the episode with this. This is from Ted, and he is asking for his wife. And I actually surprisingly have learned that there are a lot of men who are listening to this podcast with their wives or their girlfriends or their daughters or sisters. So hey, men. Happy to have you here on Keto for Women, but this one comes from Ted. I'm trying to encourage my wife to follow your podcast as well as other media. I have definitely learned a lot from your podcast. My wife's blood work is within normal limits per her MD. However, I'm thinking her fasting insulin is probably high even though her fasting glucose is under 99. She has not had a fasting insulin test. She's 5'7", 240 pounds with high blood pressure. I guess my question is related to her insulin and glucose levels. I was thinking she is insulin resistant and her glucose levels would be elevated. I'm just trying to understand the relationship between obesity, high blood pressure, and normal blood glucose levels. Thanks for all you do, Ted. So to answer his question before we get into some other things, 
obesity, high blood pressure, and normal blood glucose levels, they do absolutely have a relationship, of course. However, when we're talking high blood pressure, we're more so looking at cardiovascular risk and other issues related to that system. Whereas when we're looking at glucose levels, we're talking blood sugar issues and diseases related to that. So quite often, one person will have all three, especially if they are dealing with obesity, but it's not this absolute always thing. So let's talk about more specifically what you had going on in this question, which was you're suspecting insulin resistance. If someone is insulin resistant, they may not always have a high fasting glucose. It's super important to get the rest of these tests done. If you want to know for sure the status of your blood sugar, these are the tests you need to have done. Fasting glucose, of course. Fasting insulin, like you mentioned she didn't have done. HbA1c, which like I've mentioned in the past, is kind of this three-month average of what your blood sugar does throughout three months every moment. Those are the three that you absolutely must start with in order to even see if this is an issue. So you suspect insulin resistance, please get these other ones tested. I mean, how can you even know if you have not had her fasting insulin run? Fasting glucose is probably the least reliable of all of these because it's a snapshot of one day in the morning before you've eaten anything when a lot of times people that have blood sugar issues, they only experience it after their meals. And that's what really we need to see. So the HbA1c will do that a lot better and we will be able to see that average and if her average is high. That's a better indicator, especially if you're also seeing insulin high. From there, I would also look at triglycerides and total cholesterol. These in combination with these elevated blood sugar markers, then are a very good indicator of insulin resistance because you will have higher triglycerides and higher cholesterol, total cholesterol, when you have insulin resistance. So they really work all together to be able to determine that. And then based on those levels of all of those, so we now have five we would be looking at for insulin resistance, you can then determine if it's insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, based on how high they are. And so also on a lot of labs that I've seen, the lab ranges are so wide that they're not telling you your insulin is outside of range until you literally have diabetes. So that's really important to understand too, is a lot of these labs that traditional doctors They're saying you're fine until all of a sudden, not only are you not fine, but you are in full-blown disease world. And that's really where functional medicine, we take that way back and we look for indicators. So we would have you outside of range well before so that we could potentially try to save that before it becomes insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes. For instance, you mentioned her glucose was 99 And the doctor said that that was normal. For me, that's not. My absolute maximum for fasting glucose is 95. So she's slightly above, which I would then, you know, red flag that, especially if we're looking at those other labs and they're indicating these markers are elevated elsewhere, then we could kind of determine her level of blood sugar issue and work on that before it becomes too far gone. And that's what I really love about functional medicine. So I hope that helps. Um, 
I really think in this case, if you are someone who is concerned about your wife's health or your health, if you feel like there might be an issue with insulin resistance, prediabetes, diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular risk, you really do need to start getting your blood tested more regularly and start getting the complete panel. Get everything you absolutely can tested done, even if it costs you out-of-pocket expense. If this is something that you want to work on before it gets too far and then we really have issues, start now. Get all those tests done. And then as far as high blood pressure, that is something that, of course, the obesity is going to connect with. And so losing weight will be very beneficial for that. Stress levels will be very beneficial for that. Getting her blood sugar obviously under control is going to be huge. So we need to know more information about that and go from there and just start getting a little bit more information and more answers. And obviously keto is definitely going to be the way to go for her just to even deal with the obesity and high blood pressure. But start getting more info. Start getting that those tests done so you have the info you need to where you can start the healing process. But thanks, Ted, for listening and and getting your wife involved too. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode, everyone. Thank you for your questions. I'm slowly but surely getting through all of them, and I love getting every single one. I will eventually get to every single one. So keep on sending them in, keep on listening, and you'll get your question answered. Until next week, thank you and have a great week. Hey, lady. Do you want to make sure that you are doing the ketogenic diet the right way for you? Do you want to make sure you're getting all of those amazing benefits that come with producing ketones and not putting any extra stress on your body? Then head to my website and check out the Fat Burning Female Project. We have a new class starting soon and I'd love to have you be a part of it. Head to bit.ly slash fatburningfemale. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash fatburningfemale. And make sure to sign up to get a notification of when the next class will be. Can't wait to see you there.